ora, welcome to Q&A. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. Today, with house prices rocketing yet again, the pressure's on the government to make progress on housing affordability. Building up, increasing density is great. It gets more people in. We see it as a real positive. That's a good outcome. Well. <sighs> If it's happening to you, you'd probably say, not in my backyard. Then our MPs will be sworn in next week, pledging allegiance to the Queen. The Māori Party is calling for change. And are you ready for a COVID-9 vaccine? What you need to know before it rolls out. If that is the case, then the race to develop is over and now it comes to a question of distribution around the world and convince the public to take it. But we start today with one of the biggest challenges facing Labour as it starts its second term, housing. There's not enough of it and it's getting more and more expensive. While more first home buyers are getting into the market, so too are investors. Borrowing is cheap and returns from bank deposits are low. It's exacerbating our problems with housing affordability and inequality. I'm joined now by two leading commentators on this, Property Council CEO Leonie Freeman and economist Shamabel Jakob. Morena to both of you and thank you for being here this morning. I want to talk solutions with both of you and I want you to both put up what you think are your solutions to this. There's no silver bullet, we recognise that, but what should the second term Labour government be doing about housing? Uh, Leonie, we'll start off with you first. So I think that you, you started with the correct thing that there is no silver bullet and there's no simple solution. So in 2016 as part of my philanthropic contribution to Auckland I did a lot of work on what would a solution look like and the key thing to me is that we've got everybody operating in lots of silos. There's a lot of fantastic work going on with government council, iwi, private sector, community housing sector and the finance community but it's not coordinated. So having done a lot of research and looked at all around the world I put up a proposal around around a concept called collective impact, which is very simply bringing all the parties together, focused on a clear vision and solution. So for example, for Auckland, you know, we talk about the problems all the time, but we don't have a vision or clear targets that we're moving towards. So if you start to turn around and say, okay, we want to build 14,000 houses a year, half of which are affordable. We want to increase home ownership to 65%, including Māori and Pacifica. We want to have good ha existing housing quality. We want to solve our social housing challenges and have a zero waiting list. We want zero homelessness and we want uh, secure tenure for communities. Um, if you start with that and say, how do we then start to address that? Then you're focusing in a, in a different way. And there's a whole raft of different things that sit under a collective impact initiative. Shavuil, what do you see as the solutions? Well, <clears throat> we have a pretty immediate pressing problem and there are two things that I think we should do. The first is we need to stop lending too much money to property investment because it just drives up the price of existing houses. So we need the finance minister to go very hard on the Reserve Bank and say, your job is to make sure there is not too much credit in the economy and that it's not going into the wrong places. That's the first thing. The second thing is we're building at a record rate, but we're, we're building houses for rich folk. We've got to be building houses for the bottom half of New Zealanders who are missing out. That's where the financial stress is, that's where the housing stress is, and that's where the biggest problems are. We've got to build more community housing provided housing, and we've got to build more rental housing. If we don't do, do those two things, all these big solutions that we're talking about are going to be a solution for 20 years' time. A couple not of now. things I want to pick up on that. When you say <coughs> building for rich folks, what do you mean? Four bedroom houses? <laughs> I was in Wairua a couple of weeks ago. They're the biggest housing supply is five bedroom plus. 
all the demand is for poor people and in one and two bedroom households. So there is this huge mismatch in that, yes, we can talk about supply, but we also have to talk about supply that is directed to the right parts of the community where the need is the highest. I think what we've lost sight of is 10 years ago when we started with, oh, there, is there a problem? We just agreed there is a problem. And then we thought the solution is supply. But the, it has to be more than that. It has to be that there are more than 20,000 families that are on the housing wait list. We can't just leave them there for another 10 years. Leonie, you're nodding along to that. Did Abs you want to make some points? Yeah, no, absolutely, because I think it's important. Often people think housing is just a sort of a single thing, but actually it's about understanding it's a continuum. And so at one end of the continuum, we have transitional housing for homelessness and emergency housing, the social housing, affordable housing and market housing. And Shamabil's commenting a lot of the, the supply is on that uh, sort of um, market housing. So what we need is, is to focus a lot of energy on um, ensuring that there is supply at every one of those different types. So a lot of different, uh, more affordable housing, different sizes, different prices, different locations for people. Uh, and, and that will also help. The other thing I wanted to pick up on your comments there were saying that the finance minister should be putting more pressure on the Reserve Bank. How do we do that diplomatic dance between independence <coughs> of the Reserve Bank? It came up again <laughs> this week in, in Parliament. What's your, what's your take on that? I think we already have a very good framework. So when it comes to inflation, the finance minister says, I want you to target inflation at this rate. But we've, we don't tell the Reserve Bank what it means to have financial stability. And the interpretation at the bank is, we don't want banks failing. Well, that's not a good enough answer, right? It has to be also about making sure that we don't have money going into the economy that's creating these distortions that are both economic distortions and social distortions. So the finance minister can set a separate agreement with the Reserve Bank and say, you also have a financial stability mandate, and that includes how much credit there is in the economy and where that credit turns up. It has to be equitable and consistent with our broader objectives of a fair and good New Zealand. How concerned are you at the situation we're in at the moment with the Reserve Bank making these changes? Um, I saw a red mist last week when the Reserve Bank essentially said it's a good thing that house prices are rising. You know, we're in the middle of a once in a hundred year recession. We've got lending falling in every other part of the economy. Nothing else is happening in the economy. The only thing that's going up in house prices and that's a good thing, it is grossly irresponsible. We come back to the politics of it, Yoni, and we're in this situation where, for a lot of people, if they are able to own a house, mm. it's their only asset. Yes. Where's the political motivation to bring house prices down? Look, I don't know that we want... I've seen commentators that talk about house prices and, and they say they need to drop by 30%. Well, we don't want to see that because that would destroy the economy. But and what, that's frightening for homeowners, That is, absolutely. So, And we don't want that to happen. But what we do need to happen is we need a lot more supply at, at, at lower price points to um, meet the market. So it's not saying let's crash the market, but let's focus on delivering a lot more supply uh, at, at, at affordable prices and different sizes and typologies. And then also schemes to help people get into housing if they choose. So increasing that whole shared ownership or, or, or different schemes to support people into housing. Do you agree with those points there? I'm smiling because we had no control on the upside. What makes you think we're going to have any control on the other side? I think we should stop focusing on prices and focus on what is the outcome that we're yes. trying to achieve. It's about giving people secure shelter that is healthy and safe. So we are failing in that. So this is a fundamental human right and we suck at it. And that's not good enough. So the, the purpose should be not about whether or not we are doing stuff that's going to impact house prices. It should be about can we house New Zealand as well? And right now the answer is no. There are 20, over 20,000 families that are in terrible housing conditions. They are financially stressed, they have high and complex needs, they're on the wait list. So 
you know, the problem is much bigger than that. So let's focus on actually getting houses and supply that is fit for all New Zealanders. Mm -hmm. And it's the bottom half that is missing out. We're doing lots of really good stuff around, you know, the NPS, mm -hmm. what we're doing with our local government staff, what we're doing around, you know, apprenticeships. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good stuff happening. This is good. But that long-term solutions are not going to solve all the issues, the human issues that we're seeing about amongst this bottom half of New Zealanders. Let's talk about the role that tax plays in all of this. The, the government has rolled out a lot of tax changes. How significant is that to solving this problem, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the things that we have to understand is that there isn't just one simple policy, whatever, whatever financial policy, whatever government policy, whatever council policy. So it's got to be looked at as a whole suite to say, OK, what, what is, you know, to me the objective are that we're trying to build really strong, thriving communities for all New Zealanders and, and um, housing is such a critical part of that. So what do we need to do to achieve that? And then you look at all the levers that you've got to play to, to, to do but, it. But the government's almost ruled out one of those levers and those suite of changes with, with tax. Yeah, but I don't think it really matters. I yeah. think, you know, there are lots of countries that have capital gains taxes that also have housing crises just as good as ours, mm. right? Like Sydney. Like mm. Sydney. So I think since it's been written off, let's focus on the things that will actually work. And in fact, there are lots of other things that will do much better Im impact than taxes. So, mm. you know, I think we spend a lot of time going, oh, the government's not going to do this and going to do that. Fine. If you've made the political decision, let's put the political pressure on the things that will matter. And I guess as my job as a political reporter, I find it very hard to set that aside. But I mean, in terms of going forward with that, I mean, I think time will tell whether that was a poor thing to move. But do you agree with the Prime Minister when she said, look, I've campaigned on not having that. I can't now change my mind and, and the, the bring purpose, it in. The purpose of a capital gains tax, it would make it a fairer tax system. It wouldn't solve our housing crisis. No. So it's a different conversation. Yes. When it comes to housing, we must build more public housing, more community housing and more rental housing. Everything else is a distraction. Mm. One of the things you mentioned before as well was having that target mm. in your opening statement. Now, we've seen with KiwiBuild how politically damaging those targets will be. Yes. How does the government, especially in its second term now, kind of sweep the Kiwi Build saga aside and move on? And do you think that targets are, are something that's healthy politically as well as having something to aim for? Yeah, look, I think targets are critical because if you don't have a target, how do you know where, where you're going? Um, I think the thing is, though, that we have to develop targets for each city and, and it's not just going to be set by government because we've got to get everybody in behind those targets. So, you know, it's got to be government and council and iwi and the community housing sector and the private sector developers and the finance community. So it's got to be everybody together. But the, but the question is that if you've got a target, then you can at least aim to get there. Now, if I look if I look at KiwiBuild, and I know we don't talk about it, I mean, I thought that was a hugely brave and bold target that they set. So the question to me with these targets is not can we get there, it is how do we get there, because we must. And that is the difference, is, is um, we've got to focus on actually uh, all the steps, because if I come back to KiwiBuild, if we were really committed to doing, uh, you know, those sorts of targets, 10,000 houses a year, we, we couldn't do it in a year or two, but we actually could do 10,000 houses a year if we were prepared to do what's needed to get there. We couldn't do it with $2 billion, so there no, was a big mismatch in the policy right. design. So I think we're very... Um, cruel about failures. Yes. <clears throat> the, the message should be we need to learn from the failures and go what would we do differently. Yes. I think <clears throat> we can still re-engineer Kiwi Bill to essentially do Kiwi Rent 
if we use those $2 billion to underwrite the development of build to rents, it would be an enormously successful program. Do you think that's something that we will see the government entertain? Do you think... I'll do everything I can to push as far as I can because we all know that all those other solutions that are good will take too long. Mm. We've got to focus on the bottom half and that's where the pressure must be. Coming with my political editor's hat on, would it not be better to draw a line under Kiwi Build? and then say, right, let's, let's regroup, we've got Megan Woods, let's have a, a new system under there and not talk about Kiwi Rent or Kiwi Build like that. Do, do you think it's just us political reporters that are, that are focused on that? Do you think we need to just move on? I wrote of Kiwi Build ages ago, so yeah. I think you should too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think the thing is that um, it, government by itself can't solve this. And, uh, you know, we need to take a much broader communication track around the, all of these issues. Government has a critical role without a doubt, but so do councils. So does everybody else involved with this. And, you know, it's important to understand it's like a great big ecosystem that you need everybody. And there isn't somebody that's good or bad, right or wrong. We're all needed in this and we need to pull all the levers together to ensure we get the outcomes that we want for all Kiwis. But I think we're in a much better place. The conversation mm. has shifted. I think yes. we're arguing about the solutions. Isn't that a great place to be? Yes. I mean, 10 years ago, we were arguing if there was a problem. Yes, that's quite right. <laughs> Just a quick answer from both of you. Do you think this government can deliver on and make some progress on housing affordability? It has every opportunity to do so, but to do it, do it they need courage and speed. Final word for you, Leah. And I, I agree. I think that there's always the opportunity to do it, but it is about the action that you implement. Well, look, thank you both very much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it and really interesting stuff there. We're going to have more on housing after the break. Growing pains in a city that's been told to go up rather than out. It's an Auckland plan, even worsely written by Wellington bureaucrats. It makes no sense for Christchurch. Welcome back. The government's new development plan for our larger cities is aimed at housing moving more people while preserving our greenfields and food producing land. The national policy statement on urban development was introduced by the government in July and it's all about building up rather than out. Councils are now looking at how they can do this but some are struggling with that as Fena Owen reports. Rush hour in Merivale Lane. Well, one of them, with three schools on this road, the narrow lane gets choked with cars at drop-off and pick-up time. The construction of 18 townhouses on the lane has compounded the congestion. Merivale Lane resident Stuart Clark's just had his parked car scraped by a silver Lexus. That kind of lady has seen someone scrape the car yeah. and, and they never stopped. Because the lane is narrow anyway, well, but because of the single lane, and if you can actually see, you actually see that they're actually building out into the street. Williams Corporation have 18 townhouse complexes under construction or newly finished around Christchurch and others in Auckland and Wellington. The unitary plan in Auckland and post-earthquake relaxing of consent requirements in Christchurch has meant boom times for infill developers like Williams. They've sold over $124 million worth of townhouses in the last three months. So they're all sold? Absolutely, yep. yeah. And okay. people move in in a couple of weeks. This complex of 43 townhouses is on Rickerton Road. Started at 410,000 for a one bedroom, no car park, and 
I think the three bedroom ones with car parking were, were just a touch over 600. Now the government's national policy statement on urban development will allow for higher housing complexes in the city centre and along key public transport routes and relax requirements for car parks. Building up at increasing density is great, it, it gets more people in. We see it as a real positive, it's anything that gives the ability to build more affordable property for people is a, a really good thing and if it lets us I guess to get more people into central areas, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good outcome. The new government directive applies to Christchurch, Auckland, Tauranga, Hamilton, Queenstown and Wellington. In front of one of his apartment blocks, Wellington designer-developer Mike Cole thinks the government's new rules will take the heat off councils. He's also looking forward to building up. Most designers and developers will uh, relish the opportunity to do um, to do additional you know, to do work with the, within those new rules. There will obviously be concern about the quality of the work. There always is. I mean, we, we have that all the time. Um, and then there's some for some people there is just the, the normal natural reaction, which is a fear of change. It's an Auckland plan, even worsely written by Wellington bureaucrats. It makes no sense for Christchurch. Christchurch City Council Sam MacDonald applauds this sort of housing build in the CBD, but nowhere else. So this is six storeys high, this apartment block. It is, yes. So according to the national policy statement, this could turn up on a main, out on the suburb. Absolutely. We could see this down Rickett and Road, and as a council we have no ability to reject that. I think the height issue is probably the biggest challenge for a, a, a flat uh, city that is still looking for significant development within the central city. What's quite intriguing is the fact that now the councillors and the mayor are saying, oh, we can't have that here in Christchurch because it's an Auckland template. Guess what? The damage has already been done. They've already allowed these sorts of ugly monstrosities to occur here in, the, in Christchurch. Carl Smith is the head of the Miraval Lane Residents Association. He's fought the council on the Williams development and has heard from residents and other areas about similar building projects that they claim are destroying communities across the city. The developments are non-notifiable. Why weren't we told? I, we just couldn't understand why we weren't informed. A few blocks from Merivale Lane, Sandra's property is just metres away from a large Titus Group development. So what do you say to that not in my backyard? Well, if it's happening to you, you'd probably say not in my backyard. Their rights to, to be able to have input into these developments is zero. And, and do you feel they write you off as NIMBYs? Totally. Absolutely. Carl Smith also has concerns about quality and safety in this building boom. He points out that these townhouses were sold as having a berm and a footpath no in front of them. Area. There is no two metre setback and there is no footpath. Yet these are what was sold to the investors. It was all over our, I guess, initial plans were exactly what we'd be building. Yeah, yeah. The landscaping's on the side, but the steps go right into the gutter. So right onto the footpath? No, no, there's no footpath. The council and the council planners have signed off and approved, and it's absolutely wrong. There is someone that could get killed here. A resident of Merivale said it will take a death in that lane before anything is done. But is it already done? It's already built, you know. It's, well, it's on its way, and, uh, and there is nothing further that can be done in that regard. Uh, and it is, it is a shame, but it is the reality of, um, you know, a, a district plan that we are required to uh, comply with. 
but council staff in the six main centres will now turn their attention to the national policy statement and how to implement it. Over in Rickerton, new buyer Robert Murphy tells us he sold his roomy house in Rolleston and bought two of Williams Corporation's townhouses. He's thrilled about getting to live in Merivale. I'm going to keep Armagh Street as a, an investment property and uh, move into uh, Miravale eventually and um, have that as my um, personal home sort of thing. Another morning on Miravale Lane, resident Stuart Clark has had enough. He says he wants to escape the intensification around him and is putting his house on the market next week. He's off to the outer suburbs. So joining me now is urban designer Emma McInnes. Thank you very much for your time this morning and for having a chat to us. You saw there in Fenner's story people concerned about having these developments on their streets. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I think particularly uh, that example, um, uh, you know, th those those developments should be done around like key public transport nodes and they need to be making sure that they're um, facilitating uh, easy access, walking and cycling and it doesn't look like that actually has been done particularly well in that neighbourhood so I understand like why they're um, why they're really stressed and I think that you know with that development there needs to come an emphasis on transport needs to be a real emphasis um, as well, like how people move around in that neighbourhood so that you can sort of alleviate those stresses. So there's the transport issue, but if we're having to go up rather than out, how do we get that right? What are the other factors at play? Yeah, well, going up does mean that you have to build where there's existing infrastructure so that people don't have to... Uh, uh, to bring their cars basically with them um, so that they know that they're going into a place where there's already existing transport infrastructure and they can use that rather than having to need car parks and that's why the MPS is really good too because um, it's, it's saying you don't need you don't need that car parking um, with those builds and so it's giving people more choice um, but that infrastructure really needs to be there otherwise you will end up with a scenario like what was just shown. Talk to me a little bit about your personal situation. You mentioned they're not having cars and not taking it with you. You're, you're the poster child for that in some ways. Yeah, um, I've uh, since I moved to Auckland, which was 10 years ago, I've never had a car and I just cycle everywhere. Um, and it's actually a really easy, easy and achievable uh, lifestyle. But you do have to make sure that you are um, in a position to do that. Like, for example, I have always been close to a cycleway so that it's really safe for me to get to the places that I need to go. Um, and that helps to facilitate those trips, enable those trips. And if it's raining, then I'll take public transport. Um, so building housing where that infrastructure isn't is kind of a, isn't, it's, it kind of will lead to situations like what we just saw where there are parking problems, where there is a bit frantic on those streets and I do really feel for those people. I think that we also need to be um, making sure that we're building relationships with the communities and taking them along, taking them along that journey and, um, uh, before we're putting in those buildings and so it does feel like um, you know they just weren't really aware of it and they, they haven't bought into the story because of that process. And, and you saw in that story there in Miravale that they're not consulting with, with people in the community where they could perhaps make some concessions if they agree, look, we don't want it here, but if we're going to have it, this is what we'd like. We'd like a footpath or we'd like um, some green space. How do you do that without, without stopping process because yeah. in our earlier interviews and we need houses. Thing, we will stop the process if uh, we just go in and design the thing and we don't build these relationships with communities. Like Everyone wants to speed up and go past the consultation process and go past the informing the community and bringing them along but actually that will end in people just 
going to the media and um, because it's their only option when they aren't happy with what's happening. So we need to make sure that they are brought along that journey and there's lots of tools now for, for doing that, for having appropriate um, uh, consultation and building relationships with those communities. We can do it as part of urban design. You can't just design the thing. You've got to actually, part of it is actually building relationships with communities. Because your trade obviously is that urban design. Paint us a picture of what your perfect urban design would look like where you would want to live and you think other people would want to live too? Oh well I've actually got quite a good scenario at the moment and it's really been enabled thanks to the unitary plan actually. Um, even though I'm living in, in a community at the moment where there's quite a lot of like older sort of villas um, that are typically quite um, quite damp and not really livable, um, the unitary plan has enabled the place that I'm living in which is um, multi-storey and it's got multi-family in it as well. We call it the kainga because um, there's so many of us um, sort of living within the, uh, within the space but just share, co-sharing space um, but we all have our own private spaces and um, that has just really increased, increased the quality of my life and it's also made it much more affordable for me too as a young person. Um, being able to, to rent in the city is really difficult so to be able to share some of those spaces um, so that you're not paying exorbitant rents um, is, is yeah, really helped increase my livability in the city. Because for everyone that wouldn't be an ideal situation, they'd, they'd rather have their, their piece of private space. So how do you design, how do you have an urban situation where that works for everyone? Yeah I think it's about giving people choice because I don't think it's um, true that everyone wants to own like a big mansion where they have to then uh, buy a ride-on lawnmower to like spend their whole weekend mowing down their lawn so that their neighbours won't complain. Like I certainly don't want that and I know a lot of people that don't want that. We actually do want to um, live in, in compact, um, in compact really done, re housing that's done really well, cheaply, um, but you get the basics right um, and you live you know in close proximity to people your friends and um, so you're able to like build and facilitate those connections with people um, but it's yeah it's it's about providing that density um, so then you don't have to like waste your time like maintaining your house on the weekend because you just use the city as your backyard instead. One of the things I was really interested to get your thoughts on is if you think urban design has changed because of COVID-19. We've spent a lot of time in our houses this year compared to other years perhaps. Have you seen any changes for what people want? Yeah, massive uptake in people walking and cycling. I think that people know that actually when it's safe and easy to do so, um, they will actually take those modes. And so you've seen a massive uptake in um, people cycling and the buying of bikes, um, which has been really cool. I also think there's... Um, people want that choice about coming into their office spaces, coming into the city centre and working there and then being able to work remotely and having that better work-life balance. And I think that COVID has really given people that kind of opportunity to experiment with that. And, and it's actually helping people achieve that greater life, um, that, that greater, um, life balance, I think. Perhaps there haven't been a lot of silver linings, but maybe that's yeah, one of them I for us. It possibly is, yeah. <laughs> well, look, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate your insight on all of that. So send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A, on Facebook, or email us at qplusa at tvnz.co.nz. Next, Parliament will swear in its latest recruits this week, and that means making an oath of allegiance to the Queen and her successors, why the Māori Party thinks it's time for an update. That's next. I, Nicola Valentine Willis, swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors, according to law, so help me God. 
That was National MP Nicola Willis swearing in there in 2018. And that's the oath you'll hear new MPs recite at their official swearing in this week. But new MP and Māori Party co-leader Rawari Waititi believes it's out of date. He joins me now from Cape Runaway in the Bay of Plenty. Thank you very much for being with us today. What do you think needs to change? What will you be swearing or what will you be doing when you're asked to swear an oath to the Queen this week? Well, there's not very much I can do because uh, the, the rules are you must um, you, mu you must say that, that oath as according to the words that are laid out. You can't make any additions, you can't make any changes to it, but I do believe it is time for an oath to reflect uh, Aotearoa um, and reflect um, the consent uh, that was between the Crown and Māori uh, in terms of um, you know our commitment to, to delivering um, the political aspirations and dreams of our people. So it must reflect the Treaty of Waitangi. It must reflect also the other part in the treaty, which were Ngā Rangatiro Ngā Hapu Aotearoa, the chiefs of, of uh, the many um, uh, hapu here in iwi and Aotearoa. And, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with, with the oath if it had all of that in it, but it doesn't. It only reflects uh, an oath to the Queen and her heirs, and I, I, have, a, I have a huge problem with that. How passionately do you feel about it? How much will it stick in your craw having to do that this week? Well, actually, what it, what it does is it insults the, the fight of our people for many, many years, but also insults my tipuna who signed their treaty, uh, hoping for not, not, a, not, a, not a partnership, but actually a relationship uh, between Tawiwi and Māori. So, um, you know, because if you go through a partnership process, uh, partnership means democracy. Democracy means uh, majority rules. And that's not what the treaty was signed on. It never looked at population. It never looked at um, majority. It actually looked at a relationship between Māori and non-Māori uh, to create a, um, an equitable um, um, country to ensure that everybody uh, um, you know, was provided for, that everybody was cared for, everybody was loved, and the same opportunities were given to everybody. But that hasn't happened. You talk there about uh, wanting to swear allegiance to Aotearoa and have a reference there to the Treaty of Waitangi. Would you also, if those two things were included, would you also be comfortable with, with the allegiance to the Queen or would you like that part taken out as, as the option? Well, it's either all in there, so the Treaty of Waitangi and Ngā Rangatiro Ngā Hapu Aotearoa and the Queen Iwi Ngārangi, so, uh, you know, and Her Majesty the Queen, if they were all in there, because what you're doing is acknowledging the consent that this country was founded on, which is the Treaty of Waitangi. If they're not in there, then I, I think she should be removed. So there's a there's an and, and. So the and is you either add in the other half of the treaty, plus the treaty itself, or you take them all out. In terms of, of timing of this, is this something that you will be pushing for for 2023? Do you think it's something that you could change while on the inside? Well, it's actually been, it's, there's been a lot of work done in this space already. So Tudor tried in his time. I know Marama Davidson has also put in a private member's bill to have this change. So I think, and there is an appetite for change. As we grow a new Aotearoa that is more accepting and more knowledgeable around the true intent of the Tiriti Awaitangi, I think there will be a, an appetite for change. Um, and, um, you know, and I'm not worried about those who, who don't want change, who want to stick with the status quo, because the status quo works for them, but it doesn't work for... Um, you know, um, uh, uh, populations like the Māori population, and you've seen across all the st statistics, we're not, um, you know, we're overrepresented in that space. There's that people are quite happy with it, but there's a new generation coming through. I have hope, and I will work with those who are who are 
um, who are committed to a transformative Aotearoa heading into the future. Talking of that overrepresentation and some of the negative statistics, we've been talking about housing a lot this morning on the programme. Māori and, and getting into housing has been a big issue. What does the Māori Party see as, as a solution for helping Māori get into owning their own home? Well, actually, for, for many of us, it's a long, 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 uh, um, it, it's a very long road in terms of home ownership. We're just trying to get our peoples off the street and into homes. So state, uh, state um, homes is, is also an issue for our people and that we, the supply and demand is not meeting the, meeting the demand of our people. We've got people who are living on the streets, we've got people living in their cars, and these are working people, right? These are working people. Um, so, you know, we've got to start looking at how we can start closing that. So the Māori Party policies in, in, in our, um, uh, in, in our uh, election process, we wanted 50% of all state housing to go to Māori because we were 50% of the of the of the waiting list. It makes sense. It makes entire sense. Uh, we wanted to put uh, capital gains tax on housing, um, and also put it in a tax on vacant houses because you know the, there are a lot of vacant houses owned by um, you know people and, and international investors that invest in New Zealand because it's so much easier because we don't have a tax on housing. It's the only thing we don't tax at Aotearoa. So we need to start looking at that. The other one is releasing Māori-owned uh, um, titled land to allow our people to 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 build on homes. So there's a vast uh, range of things, but also, you know, um, we can't afford housing. We can't afford the deposits into housing. There are huge issues right across the spectrum, and we need to start looking at how we can do that. Another thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, looking forward now, tomorrow uh, the Children's Commissioner will release a, another report into Oranga Tamariki. What does the Māori Party view as the correct way to go forward? What would you like to happen to Oranga Tamariki? Well, we, we, want, we, we want Oranga Tamariki to... We want, we, what we want is the government to, uh, to, um, to devolve its resources to a Māori-run entity. Um, the current entity doesn't work. Actually, Oranga Tamariki has failed 14 reviews. 14 reviews. So, look, if a Māori organisation failed 14 reviews, we'd be gone after the first one. 14 reviews that has failed. Pu Ao Teatatu in 1988 also talked about transformative change. The final order uh, inquiry in 2020 also talked about transformative change. Um, so, hey, look, there are... Uh, there has been some extensive research done around how we can bury ourselves in this particular space. If 69% of the kids in Oranga Tamariki are Māori, uh, we make up 60%, 16% of the population here in Aotearoa. 25% of all children in Aotearoa are Māori. You can see it is considerable inequity uh, in this particular space, and we need to start looking at devolving that to a Māori, uh, a mokopuna Māori entity that is run by Māori to Māori for Māori. And, um, you know, it doesn't go far enough in terms of what has happened in the past. Uh, transformative change shouldn't ha happen incrementally. It needs to happen right now, and there needs to be some huge, vast changes in that particular space for our mokopuna and our whanau. Look, it's so interesting talking to you about all of this this morning. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll, I'll see you at Parliament next week. I'll be keeping an eye on, the, on your swearing in of the oath this week. Thank you very much. After the break... The government signed up to deals to get access to two potential COVID-9 vaccines. There's hope they could be rolled out next year, testing permitted. Will this be the game changer we're waiting for? Welcome back. Two COVID-19 vaccines may be available to New Zealanders if they pass clinical trials in the next few months. 
The government signed up to buy vaccines from two pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and Janssen, and all going well, the first dose could be rolled out early next year. To explain how that might work, I'm joined now by Helen Petousis-Harris, a former director of the World Health Organization's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. Obviously, they haven't passed their clinical trials yet, but it's looking good. How could this play out? What's your feeling on it? It's, it's looking really good. I um, have some optimism. I think it, it's played out really well so far. Uh, there's no indication that these won't pass uh, or get through the regulatory process, which will be uh, commencing very soon in the in the US. So, uh, you know, I think I think there's a good chance that we might see this soon. And when we get a vaccine, what does that mean for us? Is that how soon afterwards can we go back to normal, which back is the phrase normal. I like to use? Not overnight. You know, this is going to take a little bit of time. There's there's a lot of people to vaccinate and, and there's a lot of logistics involved in that, as you can imagine. So um, it, it's going to be a process I think we're going to see play out over next year. How do you prioritise people? Obviously, um, the most vulnerable in our community and healthcare workers are a given. But after that, how do you go about prioritising who gets it? Well, almost even before, depending on what the situation is and if we do have this you know, community transmission, you've also got the people that are most likely to get it and not necessarily you know, get severely ill. So there's those people as well. So there's the most likely to get it, those most vulnerable to severe disease. And then also there's those that are most likely to transmit it as well. So um, those are kind of the top level, um, I guess, um, things that, people, that they'll be looking at and then within those groups, breaking them down, depending on how much vaccine's on the table at the time and, uh, and what the situation is. For the mumps vaccine, it took four years to get it through the whole process. This has been a year. Should we be concerned by this? And if not, why not? Well, the mumps vaccine was developed in the 60s, which is forever ago, of course, um, particularly in terms of science and technology. Uh, we are in the position now, and it's really some of the more recent developments in technology that have allowed this to happen, and that's these RNA platforms and also the viral vector platforms plug and play, giving us the opportunity to, to develop and also produce these things really quickly, manufacture them really fast. So do you think for people watching who are perhaps concerned hearing about that, because science has moved on, a year is a perfectly reasonable amount of time? A year is a reasonable amount of time when you're putting enormous amounts of money into it, you know, cutting down some of those barriers you might normally have, not probably not having a problem recruiting people into your trials, and there's lots of disease um, in a enabling you to assess the effectiveness of it as well. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of barriers that have been broken down. Again, also the collaboration that's gone on, the global collaboration is phenomenal. So those would normally be huge obstacles. How do you deal with that vaccine hesitancy and nervousness? We did a poll during the election campaign, a One News Colmar Brunton poll, and there was 21% of people who said they would definitely not or probably not take a vaccine. How do we go about dealing with reassuring those people? I think we've got to, um, I mean, it's about communication, isn't it? And also the um, openness, transparency, uh, helping people understand the process um, and, and also, of course, um, 
getting people people's trust in that process because there's a lot of processes that, that have to happen like for example the regulatory process um, and people um, trusting in that process and do you think the Prime Minister and other health officials should be starting on that now, giving us those messages and really drilling home like they did over COVID-19 with some of those key messages for lockdown practices? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the, the, the communication campaign for, for the vac vaccines has started now and I guess we'll see it ramping up um, over the next few months and I guess continuing on because we're going to have, I guess, a lot of ongoing conversation next year. What about that misinformation that swirls around vaccines? I mean, we even had it over the election campaign with some of the political parties. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's a it's a it's a concern uh, e e for the reasons you've you know noted, and I think that has the capacity to derail a lot of efforts. So again, while we're you know putting a lot of effort in how we might deliver this thing, we've also got to put just as much effort into uh, managing that situation and trying to make sure that people are getting good information, getting it first. Uh, is going to be really important. It's going to be a challenge. I mean, you're obviously an expert in this area, but on a personal level, you'd be comfortable taking it if it ticks off the clinical trials? If that data's come through and it's been approved, I'll roll up my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll send a camera along to do that. That could maybe work out quite well. In terms of the of the clinical trials as well, once that does get in, in process. Then what happens with the borders? I mean, I know we talked before about not being overnight, but can you give me an idea of when you think the borders may be open again? I would find it hard to predict, but I think one of the things we have to think about is also what's going on on the other side of our borders, because that's really what we're going to be facing when we open it up. So there might be, um, say, for example, countries that, that have a good handle on this, have, have their COVID under control, and you might be thinking about relationships there. Um, others might, might take longer. Um, so you can imagine at the moment there'd be countries that, that would pose a real risk of bringing a, bringing a lot of disease into the country. Because the government's saying next year we could be looking at that. Could we have a situation where New Zealand's vaccinated but we're still waiting, like a lot of things, for the rest of the world to catch up with us before we can open up? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, the rest of the world are going for this as well. And, and so I think we're going to see... You're going to see a lot of uh, vaccine deployed, probably you know starting perhaps even at the end of this year. Um, it's going to take a long time to get those levels up. Um, the disease will still be there for a while, so we'll have to also not forget about all those other measures that we use. Um, you know, our masks, our, our distancing, all of those things need to be used hand in hand with the vaccine as we kind of morph into our our. Um, new normal and opening up our borders. Is it something that we will have to get done every year, like a flu vaccine, or will it be more like a booster shot like we see with some of the others where it's every few years? Can, can we tell that now? You can't tell that yet. Um, it, it's not going to be a case of the virus morphing so fast like the flu, where you, we, you know it just um, outpaces your vaccine development. Um, it, it changes a lot more slowly than that. So we'll have to wait a while to see how long that protection lasts for. But I guess in the future, you know, if, if it does wane, then you can look at boosters. How exciting is this time for you? I mean, we're, we're dealing with all of this, but this is, I guess, you've, you've trained and worked towards this mm. for a long time. 
Oh, it's hugely exciting, of course. Um, you know, you don't have a pandemic like this come along uh, very often. Unfortunately, we're probably going to see more of these. Uh, hopefully, we'll be better prepared next time. But in terms of the, I, I guess, watching this incredible endeavour, this collaboration um, and this investment in these technologies that have just sort of been sort of sitting there uh, in the background waiting to be used is, is incredible. Well, look, it's such fascinating stuff for us as well. So thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today. Stay with us. The panel is here after the break and they'll join us with their insights. The mandate came from the campaign and plan that we put to New Zealanders. And so now, because of that mandate, uh, I think the public expect us to roll out what we campaigned on. Interesting there. The Prime Minister speaking to One News reporter Katie Bradford this week. Let's bring in our panel now. Lila Hari, unionist, Labour Party member and former MP, and Fran O'Sullivan, NZME head of business. Thank you both very much for being with me this morning. Let's talk about housing. We heard there from, from some two experts about their solutions. You both have expertise in this area. Fran, we'll start off with you. What do you see as the solutions? Well, I'm not sure that the solution is simple um, if it exists at the moment. I think we have a housing bubble and caused by cheap money. And people have the opportunity to leverage up on the um, equity within their existing homes, use that for a deposit to buy another one and, you know, get an untaxed capital gain. And everybody's piled in. You know, you talk to people around Auckland in particular, also uh, Wellington now, and people talk about their houses. I've got so many houses, you know, you've got this untaxed wealth that's coming through. They're making more money uh, through their house appreciation in some cases than they actually are from their jobs. And this is actually quite sick. Uh, it does need to be addressed. Um, it, how? Yes, you've got the, the position at the bottom of the tree where you need, it's about supply. And you can bang on as much as you like about, you know, the aesthetics of cities, that sort of thing. But you've also got a human need. So I think it's um, to address that one. It's modular housing. It's bring it in from offshore. Big factories do this stuff. Vietnam, China. Bring it in. Bring it cheap. Bring the labour if need be. Commandeer land and whack the housing up. Good. That's a nice phrase. Whack the housing up. That should maybe be a billboard somewhere for a political <laughs> party. They might have to pay you for that one. Lila, what do you see as the solutions? Well... I think the, the political discussion now is very much around the rapid increase over the last year in house prices. Um, no party went into the election campaigning on the basis that there would have been a 20% increase in house prices. Treasury had forecast a decrease in house prices over this period, which has turned into a substantial increase. Um, one of the things that concerns me is that the focus then goes on, you know, the relatively advantaged, and I know people are struggling to get into first homes, but the relatively advantaged fighting each other for that to buy that house. The focus may very well shift off the real housing need that exists in the country in that environment. Um, so I really applaud the kind of um, framework and narrative that was being presented on your earlier discussion by Shamabil Yaakob and Leonie Friedman, that there, it is essential that the government control and move fast on 
the, the human rights issue of providing warm, safe, dry and secure homes. Because you've both talked about that. You've both talked about this being the basics of a, a human need. The, the Prime Minister now, they don't have the coalition to deal with. Do you think she will be transformative in this area? Do you think we'll see them move and make some big changes? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is there's no-one to blame now. Before they, in the previous government, they could actually point to issues with New Zealand first, and there were. But actually, it rests on her shoulders, and it rests on her shoulders not to give the flannel that we heard earlier, and that was flannel, because she didn't actually answer, answer the question. It's actually to actually get there, pull her infrastructure minister around her, I've spoken to Grant Robertson. He is thinking about modular housing. Yes, we might have to deal with an immediate problem by bringing modular housing into the country. Well, do it. You know, it's not hard. You might have to commandeer land in the same way it is for roading, all of that. Um, you know, you might have to lose a park or three somewhere, Mount Smart, whatever. Um, but you're going to have to get housing up and create housing for people, you know, at the affordability uh, side of it. And that might mean getting the land price down. I've studied this issue in places like Seoul and believe me when they had a whole surge of people coming from South Korea to the city they didn't muck around. I mean they actually just used the powers of government and acquired. Now that might sound a bit communistic but um, sometimes you actually have to put the greater good and particularly you know the people at the lower end are right up high. Singapore does it, all sorts of places do it, get real. Politically it's going to, that's a little bit of a hard sell and you've almost brought the criticisms in there already but do you think now this is just what well, needs to happen with the second term government? I think government? the first thing is that the government has to clearly state what its outcomes are for the 22,000 families Targets. on the, the waiting yeah. list. Yeah. Um, and, and the you know, the the kind of sphere around that, I mean, that's the most serious housing need. Um, and then there is very serious housing need surrounding those communities. These people are not anywhere near the housing market in terms of buying houses. So for them, buying afford an affordable house is not the priority. The government, um, actually can play with those expectations. These people are not expecting to buy a house. They are looking for secure rentals, warm, safe, dry, dry homes. There is the capacity in the construction sector now to provide them. We know that because the construction sector is booming. They are building lots and lots of houses. And, you know, I mean, just referencing back Shamabel's comments, the question is who are they building those houses for. It would not take a huge shift um, to incentivise this sort of idea of build to rent. Um, the government actually has a fair bit of land available to it. I mean, I'm involved in Uptown around the uh, rail station rebuild at Mount Eden. 100,000 square metres of land will be available there in four years' time owned now by City Rail Link Limited, public land, it's essential that those sort of opportunities where you have a substantial portion of land around a rail hub or a public transport hub do not get squandered. That's something that Emma McInnes talked about, having Absolutely. that transport hub. What I want to talk to you about now as well is the National Party. Uh, they had their AGM yesterday. A lot of the uh, National MPs were travelling back up on our flight yesterday as well. What are, I'll start off with you, friend. What are your thoughts on 
the state of the National Party at the moment. John Key giving a pretty rousing speech telling people if you can't stop your leaking, perhaps stop your membership to the National Party. Yeah, and I was sitting next to him on the plane too, <laughs> or just across the aisle. I think the big thing, talking to some of the MPs though, they felt um, a bit over overshined by John Key. I mean, he's still the guy who's kind of pulling the strings to a certain degree around the, around the back end of the party. Um, and, but, but he was right about the leaking. The leaking has to stop. They never really swung behind. Um, oops, sorry. That's not Maybe that's John Key giving you a call now to say, please stop talking about me on the... On the yeah, on I the, thought uh, that was off, actually. It, that's all that. right. That's all right. I'm kind of curious to know who it was, <laughs> but maybe too. we'll leave it. Yeah, me too, but no, it's not John Key. His name would have come up. Anyway, um, but however, you know, I mean, there are, there are issues with um, the party, incredibly disloyal uh, to each other, uh, also not just at the MP level. You know, that, that sort of interference from outside that we saw from people like Michelle Bogue, they've got to have a total clean-up, they've got to get younger, they've got to get more with it, um, you know, and and just stop believing that they're born to rule because I think the point that um, John Key made about that don't, um, you know, don't, put, don't rule out Jacinda Ardern potentially being Prime Minister beyond not another election, but perhaps one after that and the one after that. And if you look back, uh, for instance, um, National only narrowly um, missed out uh, in 2017, they, and it was all at the whim of Winston Peters, but they were the biggest party then. Now, there's nothing to stop, potentially, Jacinda Ardern being in that place. How will they be feeling after this? I mean, we can kind of get some kind of insight, but as someone who's been an MP on the inside, having this attention, what will they be needing to do now? Well, the only thing I think that's relevant about the National Party right now is that they're irrelevant. In terms of the kind of decisions and issues that the government is facing, the government needs to focus entirely on what it can do. And um, I think there's a bit of a flavour, particularly in some of the Prime Minister's narrative, which is kind of acting like she's a prisoner of something, a prisoner of, you know, how people rejected the CGT capital gains tax in the earlier elections, a prisoner of Winston Peters. She is no prisoner. Labor have an absolute majority. They have a a supply and confidence agreement and a very positive working relationship with the Green Party. They have the Māori Party, you know, who are going to be pushing hard, as you can see, um, for real progress in these areas. They are not prisoners. They are the prison wardens. And it's time that they actually use the kind of control and the confidence that they should have for the next three years. That is what will ensure National's ongoing irrelevance. She's got the keys to unlock the doors. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's really nice. Well, look, we'll have to leave it there. It's a nice place to leave it. Thank you both very much for your time today. We'll let you get back to that phone call as well, Fran. It's very important. <laughs> I know, we're on, on plane mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of feedback coming in on housing this morning. Tama says the Prime Minister jumped the gun ruling things out. That will count against her in the end. On Facebook, Louise Raymond reckons the capping of the number of residential properties someone can own is the way to go because investors seem to have an endless pot of money.
Suzanne Pearce tweeted, wondering whether it's time to bring back the Ministry of Works, saying the private sector is incapable of cheap, good quality housing. So that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and thanks for your contributions. Thanks very much to the Q&A team here in the studio and in the control room. Jack will be back next Sunday morning, back from managed isolation, Monday morning at 9am. Have a good week. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.